thank you very much for inviting me to talk. Um, I'm going to uh, take about an hour. Um, as I work for an advertising agency, and I know that I've recognised a few people in the audience have heard me speak before, I'm an ad guy, so I'm not an academic, so please forgive the lightheartedness of some of this discussion. We're going to talk about the truth about smart mums. Uh, why smart mums? Because the initial uh, reason for doing the, the study I'll be talking mostly about tonight was try to understand in the modern context of mothers and technology, and particularly smart technologies, how they were behaving, how they were reacting to those technologies and using them. That's obviously of great interest to us in the marketing industry, but it also touches on some of the issues you mentioned about the, the sociology of mothers and how things are changing. Um, obviously, one of the reasons why, as an as, as a advertising agency that's in roughly 122 countries around the world, why do we care about mothers? Well, because most of our clients care about them as shoppers, primarily. But when I first arrived in Japan about nine, eight and a half years ago, one of the ladies who worked for me had literally just come back from maternity leave. Now, I had been to Japan many times, but it was one of those first moments when you first arrive in a country and somebody says something to you and you go, really? Because, of course, whether I was from my native Australia or in other countries in Asia where I've lived, a woman returning from maternity leave was not considered such a big deal. We had at that time 650 members of staff. She was the only returned mother from maternity leave at that time in the company. Um, and she was considered a novelty factor. And people used to almost literally come out and poke her as if, like, are you really real? Like, you, you're a mother and you came back? Um, this was, she actually has led, led this project in Japan for us ever since because her point was that um, in going through her pregnancy, uh, etc., the experience of talking to other young mothers, she discovered that what she felt was some differences between the behaviours and attitudes of, if you like, the current generation of mothers in Japan and mothers that may only have been 10 years older, let alone her own mother. One of the th factors was that, well, you know, they are mothers, but they are also women. And this is historically, of course, very true in all societies because, unfortunately, it's maybe politically incorrect, incorrect to say, but in, historically, in most societies, or in fact in all societies, a woman's primary role in life was to become a mother, and once she became a mother, that was her definition of life, or she, how she was defined. But, you know, this is typical of the way in which mothers actually see themselves, or today's young Japanese mothers would see themselves, quotes like, my husband bought me dinner at a luxurious hotel, the rendezvous in the lobby, this was an anonymous rendezvous, they pretended they'd never met. Met in a hotel, he took me to a romantic dinner, that's the moment I became a woman again. Now, in some contexts, when I've actually, or quite recently I was in the United States, I presented a version of this, and, and of course a lot of the women in the United States, their reaction was, so? You know, so they were role-playing, you know, that's like when I get dressed up in leathers and whips at night, so what? Um, but in the context of Japan, what was interesting was that the different ladies that work for me, that are mothers, and react to comments like this, like, wow, I wish my husband would do that. Like, I don't know of anybody whose husband would do this. Funnily enough, this particular woman was married to a Korean gentleman, which helped to reinforce the perception amongst mothers in Japan that Korean men are somehow romantic in a way Japanese men are not. 
which is a commonly held belief amongst young mothers in Japan, of course perpetuated through the soap dramas. I've spent a lot of time in Korea and know for a fact that ain't true, but... Uh, the purpose of doing these exercises, we, we run a lot of global studies, they're called truth studies because partly because our company's motto is truth well told, I can explain all that later on, it's 100 years old, but we focus on trying to understand what the truth is about different types of people in the situations and I know some of you have heard Ken etc. Heard, heard somebody talk about some of these other studies but this particular one is one of a series, um, these are other studies we've done in the last 12 months about youth or social behaviour, beauty etc, privacy. But the mother's study is actually done globally after, on a basis of seven years of doing studies in Japan, uh, which I can, we're happy to share all of these. These were annual studies that involved talking to about 2,000 mothers in Japan about the way in which Japanese current mothers felt about life, etc. Based on that, we then started to challenge the issue of, well, how different are Japanese mothers from mothers in other countries? So we then undertook a study to look at that. Now, I will point out that, of course, that when I talk about mothers in the context of today, you have to remember, of course, that there are commonalities about mothers that don't change. For example, this is a piece of communication that you may have seen on television this year. ジャンソンエンジョンソン。いや、インサムウェイズ、イツコアト、ノットアベリーレマーカブルピースオブアドバーティングオーコミュニケーション。うん。イツベースオンアベリーレマーカブルピースオブアドバーティングオーコミュニ
So we took all of that, we did a, a, a global study. We, we did this across seven, 20 countries. We ran focus groups and uh, talked to mother bloggers, famous mother bloggers. By definition, a mo famous mother blogger is somebody who had at least 2,000 followers um, across 20 countries. And then in eight countries, we did uh, about a thousand, a bit over a thousand online sample uh, questionnaire. Uh, the data I'm gonna show you is across those eight markets. Unfortunately, I have to say Germany was not one of those. Um, so forgive me, but we did do some of the qualitative work in Germany, so if you want to know a bit about that, fine. There are four main areas I'm going to discuss. One is what we call the mum economy, which is the strategies basically they're using to manage their, their own community. And we call it the mum economy, as you're going to see, because basically mothers today are using their information, their knowledge and their usage of research tools and communication tools to gain credit for themselves in the same way, not earning money, but earning credits, if you like. Um, they then use information sources from Google to grandma, and I'll talk about the shifting relationship of those different information sources. Uh, you touched on something about you know, uh, a happy mother, etc. Well, it's an interesting dynamic about the way in which mothers are now thinking about happiness, and particularly the happiness of their child. And then I'll talk about what we call the triathlon, which is basically mothers trying to fit multiple roles and how they actually go about that. So, the mum economy. <clears throat> mothers have a codependent ecosystem. We know anthropologically that in any society, uh, in a village community, as soon as people started to gather together, that women became codependent on each other for advice, etc. So, a, ma a woman gets pregnant, she looks to her own mother, her older sisters, etc. for advice. She looks to the other villagers. That's always true. That codependent society, though, of course, has been multiplied by the effects of modern communication. So in Japan or anywhere else, you would see that they, the idea of a mum community is as traditional as the society, but the way in which it's actually, if you like, uh, performed changes. Um, so for example, we saw in the 20th century, particularly in the late 20th century, the accumulation of a bunch of artefacts that became talking points, the exchange of information on a more formalised basis, etc., etc., through uh, books, through programming, uh, through uh, care groups, etc., where you would have total strangers who, because they happen to become pregnant, suddenly become best friends. This was a function, basically, of 20th century behaviour in most urbanised societies. Of course, in the last 10 years, what we've seen is that now has moved online or into a digital space. And that really creates a big change in terms of the relationship because in the past, it would have been literally maybe four women. Then those two women actually were probably symbolic of a number of groups or a much larger group of women that are used and my mum's economy grew to a larger number through my associations through schools or maternity uh, groups, etc., etc. But now we're talking about literally I have communities of thousands. Communities that I may play more or less active parts in. I may be a contributor or I may be just a receiver. And it's certainly true that if you think about Japan versus most of, particularly Western markets, but also the Chinese marketplace, for example, women here tend to be more receivers rather than contributors for a whole lot of mostly sociological reasons. One of the things we do, we, we do on a regular basis is we undertake, if you like, um, media analysis tools to look back over what's been happening in popular media to understand how that might affect 
understanding uh, changes. Um, this, for example, was uh, uh, this chart represents a study where we look back over 40 years of the most popular magazines in the marketplace to understand what it said about mothers. And, you know, just the top line, quite obviously, there's not only a shift in fashion, but there's a shift in terms of the way in which the mother uh, thought about herself or identified themselves. So from being a faithful helpmate to her husband, this is actually the stuff that appeared in magazines, and to be a good mother and a good wife, you should be just a helpmate. Then, of course, as we started to see some changes in terms of the, some changes in the, uh, the law, et cetera, in terms of the availability of uh, part-time work, full-time work, more uh, pay changes, we started to see some changes in behaviour. But we also saw this thing happening with the beauty mum. Now, this becomes significant as we start to see that shift there because mothers, mothers didn't actually get younger. Remember, mothers were getting older, but they're looking younger. And it's an interesting dynamic when you think about it, that over the last 35 years, there's a very interesting uh, flip book that one of the uh, people that works for me has put together. It consists of 150 photos going back over 40 years of a typical mother. And it's interesting because on the back of each page, the, the flip book is just the photos. But on the back of the page is the age. So what happens over the 40 years is you can see that the average age has shifted. Uh, this is mothers when their child is two years old. And you can see that the average age has shifted from somewhere around, uh, around 22 to just on 30. But actually, when you're looking through the flip book, you have that same sort of effect of like, it seems like they're getting younger and younger. Now, that's partly because of beauty arrangements and attitudes to beauty, et cetera, et cetera, and of course, all sorts of other activities. But it's also got to do with the attitude of women going into motherhood and taking with them their single life behaviour with them. And this is fundamentally in Japan one of the biggest things that you know, we have to take on board as we talk about marketing to younger mothers today is that at 30 or 31 when she has her first and usual only child, she's actually experienced probably seven or eight years of being an independently income earning but total non-saver. So she spent seven years earning and spending everything on herself. Why do we think because she got married that she's suddenly going to stop wanting to go to Starbucks, being the world's heaviest cosmetics user, by far the world's heaviest cosmetics user? Um, and there still is. So a typical Japanese woman of 35 carries 17 beauty products in her handbag. The typical American woman of 35 carries five beauty products. And nobody comes near the Japanese woman. This is you know, the, just a fact, right? So that's an interesting sort of dynamic that's gone on. And, and that'll come on board to explain some of the irregularities, why Japanese mothers are a little bit different from mothers in other marketplaces. Mums tend to specialise to contribute to the mum economy. Like all of us, I guess most of you in the room and those of you that I, the fewer that I do know, I know you have specialties. I have a specialty in, to earn a living. Um, and most of us have defined at some point, well, I'm going to become like the specialist on ageing populations or I'm going to be, you know, I'm the specialist on talking of public galleries or something, you know. Um, 
Mothers, we found the great majority of them, over 80% around the world, told us, look, I do pick a or one or two subjects where I feel I'm the specialist amongst the mums community that I live in. So amongst all my friends and acquaintances, etc., I might be the person that knows more about finding the best deals or, you know, cooking and nutrition or how to hold a party, a kid's party. And all my friends would come to me for advice on what the best party decorations would be. Now, we might think that's trivial, but in the world of that economy, that becomes extremely important because you want credibility for yourself as an individual. So you get individual credibility in any community by having specialisation. I guess in the modern world of Japan, we call that being otaku. Um, it's a little bit different in Japan because what we found was that Japanese mothers, globally 81% of mothers told us that they would do it. It was about 60% in Japan, which was the lowest of the, the countries where we measured this. And why was that? Well, that goes back down to when we qualitatively then reflected these findings back to mothers in Japan, we found, well, I can't really admit to that because I'm not perfect at it. And that's, again, symbolic of the culture. Americans, for example, are the most likely to claim expertise when they actually don't know that much. No offence to any Americans in the audience. Um, the mum blogger is the ultimate brand builder. What happens is that those famous bloggers, by famous we mean they have a, they have a following of about 2,000 or more pe uh, people, uh, they're the ultimate example of the fact that they are building a brand through their expertise. But it waters down to every mother, the, the, the association, the specialisations. What happens then in different marketplaces, as you can see here from Japan, is that they start to figure out what their worth is. Uh, for example, this quote, we go to Disneyland about once or twice every year, so I've come to be knowledgeable about things like how to find out the waiting time for attractions to minimise loss of time or how to make advanced online reservations for shows. Which sounds like a trivialisation, but what we find is that, uh, it happens that Disneyland is one of my clients, the, the target market for Disneyland is primarily not mothers in Japan. The target market is young single women. Um, and that's where they make the most money. Okay? But those young single women, when they become mothers, some of them take that experience of having been rabid fans of Disney and become the experts in explaining to other mothers how you can get through Disney most efficiently in the cheapest time, cut the corners, all the rest. This is just examples of building brand, if you like, around aspects of that being their lives that we might find a little bit strange, but we found this to be true globally. Okay, so I'll ask three or four quiz questions during the course of the evening. Which country has the most mum bloggers? China. Um, there are, uh, forgive the, the few complicated bar charts, but uh, in this particular exercise, do you write, we asked mothers uh, around uh, 1,100 mothers across these different, in each of these different countries, do you write a blog? What we found was red bar is yes regularly, yellow is yes occasionally, no, but I can thought about it, no, I'm not interested in writing one. Notice here, for two different reasons. In Japan, again, it goes back to I don't write a blog because 
That would mean, I think I'm the expert. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this goes back to the perfectionism thing. Uh, it was interesting, the, 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 the UK answer response to why, don't, why wouldn't you write a blog? Nah, who cares? Uh, I'm not going to help other mothers. No, I have to say, my, my family's English by background, and my mother was English, and they have a very negative attitude. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Racial stereotyping, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, of course, sometimes we learn that cultural stereotypes are just correct. For example, my house is a bit of an open house. There are often other people and their children over. And of course, we probably would have guessed that that was least likely to happen in Japan. Well, we know basically the reasons for that. So, Japanese mums are more guarded about sharing. Uh, they limit the, the information they have to close communities. So here we'd actually asked, you know, um, do you want to share with everybody when you know something? Do you want to share it with close friends? Or do you want to share it with as many people as possible? I, I don't want to share, I should say. So you can see here that actually that Japan was the most likely to say, I don't want it to share, don't want to share. Um, and the least likely to say, I want to share it with as many people as possible. Again, because of this whole thing about, look, I don't want to be caught out as um, uh, being either being showing, trying to say I'm an expert when I'm really not an expert. We did an exercise in each country where we gave uh, women a number of these blank cartoons and sort of said, I want you to fill in typical conversations under different scenarios. Um, one of the scenarios we did was, well, we want you to fill in what's a typical conversation you've had with your, your friends and what you really think is going on in that conversation um, about uh, everyday, everyday occasions where somebody might have asked you for advice. So, my boy coughs recently, coughs badly recently. Do you know any good hospitals around here? Mm, I heard that Mrs Tanaka brought her boy to a doctor with her asthma. She might know about good hospitals. Okay, but what they're really thinking is, look, I can't really get reliable information online. I need to talk to someone, which is fair enough. I can't talk about things I don't know well. I should introduce her to a better person. So in other words, I'm, I'm going to tell her about Mrs Tanaka because I don't want to tell her that I've had a good experience because then she might blame me if it goes wrong. Quiz question. If a mum could only save one thing from the list below, which one would she save? Hmm? You're not a mother, obviously. <laughs> He's a gaijin that lives in Japan. <laughs> Smartphone. This was sort of interesting. We'd actually done a number of lo a much longer list and then reduced it. But what was really interesting about this was, again, some differences across countries. But the reality was that the smartphone becomes the element that's much more important than anything else because it's the thing that allows me to communicate with my community today. That's being both a receiver and a sender of information. Without that, I'm totally lost. Yeah, sure. Now, by the way, as I've had to point out to every audience I've ever given this to, Ken, don't go home and say to your wife, look, I'll take the ring back and give you a smartphone. That doesn't work, okay? 
Um, they want both, but, but the smartphone is very, very important, or the mobile phone, because of the connection value. It's, a, it's an economy that's then built on this thing um, that the technologies allow us to be savvy in what we do. Not surprisingly in Japan, but surprisingly that across all those countries we found that 91% of mothers that owned a smartphone told us that they use it while shopping at least once a month. So while they're out and about shopping. Now this was sort of, okay, I could sort of get this for Japan. I was sort of surprised <coughs> in some of the other marketplaces that this was still so prevalent. But we're already seeing the behavior patterns where people automatically, or mothers more and more, are using smartphones for comparison shopping at all times. So, <clears throat> we did, as I say, see some differences. So, for example, uh, the yellow is the global average, Japan is the, is the reddish bar, and you can see here that, again, Japanese mothers were more likely than mothers generally to say that they would rather keep their smartphone than anything else. Um, they were less likely to say the engagement ring. And they were much less likely to say in the longer list that they would save their child's favourite toy. I don't know about the chocolate thing. I don't even know why we put that in there. But anyway. <laughs> Although I'm pretty sure my wife would go for the chocolate. But um, They will share but prefer to do it face to face because um, you know, to type it means commitment. Uh, this example here shows, obviously, the question, how would you most commonly share an interesting idea or piece of advice that you read, heard, or saw? And here we've compared J Japan to India and China and then the total global uh, totals. And you can see here, but in Japan, they're much more likely to say, I would do it by talking to people as opposed to, for example, by Twitter or other microblog site was very popular in China, but very, very rare that a Japanese mother would say that she would commit to putting something on Twitter in terms of advice. And that's simply because what we all know, once you type it, you can't remove it. Um, it's stuck in the ecosphere forever, and I don't want to show commitment. Do you think technology helps you be a better mother? Um, in most countries, the overwhelming answer is yes. In Japan, no. Why is that? Well, what you have to remember is the mothers we're talking about. The mothers we interviewed were mothers of children under 15. Now that by definition means that basically they're, mother, they're women in Japan that sit somewhere probably from their late 20s through to their early 40s, for the most part. Now think about their own personal history. Most of those women have their whole adult lives had access and, and used a mobile phone that has internet access through iMode, etc. They're the only population of mothers in the world that have had that technology access. In every other country we surveyed, for the majority of women to have a mobile phone with internet access was something that came about in the last four years. These women have had it their whole adult lives. So what we found consistently was the trick in understanding these numbers is that Japanese mothers take the technology for granted. They don't see it as making things easier 
because it's always been there. Plus, their problem is the access to all of this makes things harder. And the reason for that is because Japanese people are compelled to search for every possible option and alternative piece of information. Instead of, for example, we found in Italy, my wife is Italian by the way, um, we found in Italy the response was the first answer is good enough. In Japan, the propensity was to search and search and search. So giving me all this technology just adds work. So they, <laughs> so they tend to think of technology as something less than a tool and more as a compunction. Um, here we asked, overall, do you think technology simplifies or complicates your life? And again, Japan feels, Japanese mothers feel that technology complicates life because you're compelled to use it. Other th again, remember their whole life story, their life history of using technologies. Brands, we found, need to think about um, integrating themselves into this mum economy by doing a number of things. We found overall that they talked about, mothers all over the world talked about the fact that they want to be specialists, so they need a brand that can help them identify their specialty and help them create that sort of specialty. That they're looking for brands that will facilitate information exchange. And this is quite interesting because in the similar study we've done on people 16 to 30 years of age around the world, about six months before, we had in a sense the same response, which is that any organisation that is offering some sort of digital solution, the number one thing you can give me is don't give me advice, give me more ways to exchange information. Um, of course, then it helps shape their brand, etc. and partnering with mums is very important. What's interesting is that uh, mothers everywhere overwhelmingly said that if you give advertising or marketing advice through uh, a blog, it's fine. You can take exactly the same communication and put it on TV or put it in a magazine and I'm going to be suspect about it. But because it comes on a blog, I'll trust it. The one exception again there was Japan. Overwhelmingly around the world we found that mothers told us the most trusted medium for information sources was blogs. Blogs by recognised other mothers. In Japan it was broadcast television. Why? Consensus. If it's on broadcast television it means everybody's seeing it, therefore if I do it everybody else is doing it. We also have to think about the emotional zones uh, that, and, and, play, and roles that mothers believe that they are playing. Traditionally, mothers thought of themselves as gatekeepers. Now what they're saying is they see themselves as gate changers. So game changers, I should say. So it's no longer about I'm there to protect my family, I'm actually there to help direct the different elements of my family, members of my family, into opportunities. Uh, it's not just about holding the purse strings but now it's about powering the economy of their family. Now that doesn't mean necessarily going out and getting a better paid job than my husband. It actually means thinking about more about how the economy in all senses, no, so not just financial, but information economies, etc., can be better managed inside my family circumstance. And one of the results of all that means that they no longer see themselves as a homemaker, they tend to see themselves more as a, if you like, a family visionary, where the different members of the family will go, what it can achieve as a, as a group, etc. Where do they get information from? 
what strategies they use for information gathering. Well, this Google plus grandma is an interesting mix because although whether or not it's, it's Google or another, <coughs> another site, uh, this is the, the conundrum today of, well, where do I look for information? How do I get it? Of course, traditionally up until very, very recently, the number one information source when you were a mother was your mother or maybe your grandmother. But that's changed because in the modern world, uh, mothers are faced with this plethora of sources and the trick then is to try to balance out what is it that is correct that's coming from all these multiple sources and how do I actually get to a resolution about what is the right thing to do. So to succeed, a modern mum has to become a skillful sort of navigator and curator of information itself because she's not relied upon direct fed information. Now this was interesting to me because in the 1990s I was uh, living in Thailand and doing a lot of work across Southeast Asia. Uh, we had undertaken a number of studies on behalf of a couple of our clients to understand uh, what's the, what is a good mother. Uh, this came about because in a brief one time from a global company who was selling milk powder products and they said, well the target is uh, good mothers. Who's, what's a good mother? Well, you know, all mothers are good mothers. Well, patently not all mothers are good mothers. Um, not all mothers even aspire to be good mothers. Um, so we had investigated what the definition of a good mother was by other mothers. And when we did this across six countries, in not Japan, but six other Asian countries, we found some very consistent measures. There were three core definitions of what a good mother is. One, a good mother is a mother who will sacrifice absolutely everything for her child. She would starve herself, she would give up ev absolutely everything, she'll give up new clothes to make sure that her kid gets the best clothes. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, that sort of makes sense, yeah. We all like to think our mother was like that. Number two definition was, a good mother is a mother who will investigate everything to death to make sure she doesn't make a mistake. She'll read the back of every pack, etc. Remember, this was the 1990s, sort of pre-internet. Third definition was, a good mother is a mother who does what other mothers do. Now, when we actually then put that back into literally thousands of mothers and sort of said, now pick one of those three definitions you've given us, the answer was, I'd like to be number one. Number two is impractical. It's too much hard work. Uh, number three is the route you've got to go. You've got to do what other mothers do because otherwise it leads to social embarrassment. That's sort of interesting. The trouble now is that number two becomes an option because there's so much more information there, but I need to broker that and I feel compelled to have to search that information. And so I'm now trying to balance out these different roles of what I mean by myself and how I think about being a good mother. The trouble, as I said, is there's just more choices, more voices. So they are always trying to uh, overcome this sort of bombardment of information and what they do about it. <clears throat> and they have to use more judgment. So what are they saying? What are they thinking? This particular example was from the United States. You know, my Adam knows his ABCs in English and Spanish. He can read and count to 100. Wow, that's amazing. What an accomplishment. She's so full of it. Um, and the reality is that what we're trying to do all the time, or rather what mothers are trying to do, is mo most of us in life, we're trying to uh, maximise our assets um, and impress everybody else with those assets and, and what we are doing 
And in fact, I'm a great mother because my kid can achieve all this, living in a world where other mothers are actually competing with us, even our friends. In Japan, we saw this sort of example that, you know, uh, here, I'm planning to hold a birthday party for my daughter. What do you think? Should, who should I invite? Why don't you ask your daughter about who she wants to have for a party, which is the obvious answer. But what they told us they're really thinking about is what if my daughter would name people that I don't want to invite? And what if I'm the person to be excluded? I hope my daughter is getting along with her friends. Well, how do you figure out if your daughter is getting along with her friends? How do you do that? Mixy, Facebook. Because, you, you know, once the kid now is... Uh, the average age at which a kid, a Japanese girl, opens a Mixie account now is eight. Okay? So by the time they're nine, ten, you can find out everything you want to know by just making sure that you've got access to your kid's Mixie account. Do you know what Mixie is? Yes? Good. Uh, um, Facebook account, etc., etc. Mums are responding to this by developing their own compass. Um, of course, what they're doing is they're trying to figure out the different options and then trying to follow up on their instincts because it's a very tough decision-making process. And that, again, goes back to what I said before about if you happen to be a, a, a brand, if you happen to be a, a, a social cause, if you happen to be anybody who's trying to reach and help mothers or do something with mothers, then what you want to do is to try and find easy ways to give them that sense of their own compass and how to make the decision process because they're looking for that guidance. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I don't know why I missed a chart. One of the things I should have said in that, uh, in that session is, to the question of Google versus uh, uh, mums, um, we found that uh, uh, around the world, about 30% of mothers today say they would never ask their own mother for advice, on average. About 30% across countries would say they'd never ask their own mother for advice. In China, that number goes up to around 75%. For obvious reasons. If you think about a woman in China who, has, who is 30 years of age or 35 years of age, what's the point of asking your mother? Because 20 year, or 30 years ago, when you were a child, absolutely none of the available products, services, uh, theories about good motherhood, nutrition, etc., were available. So she lives, lived in a world that was the Stone Age as far as modern Jap Chinese mothers are concerned. There's no relationship, no reason to ask my mother. Remember, too, that younger mothers today in China are basically now entering their world of their, their single children, they're the one-child one policy, the first generation of mothers, and so they've been raised to be totally selfish, so why the hell would I ask my mother? Because I've been raised to believe that I'm God's gift to earth. So therefore my mother can't teach me anything. That's literally what we hear all the time. Happy together. <clears throat> so, uh, what are the strategies for raising children? Well, if you think about it, traditionally, you know, um, my mother happened to have been a sergeant in the British Army, in the English Army. She literally was a drill sergeant. And I was raised in a house where she never used my first name or my brother's first name, except on our birthdays. The rest of the year was, McCoggan, do this. McCoggan, do that. Slap, bang, you know. What do they say? Like a, a touch of the hand never hurt the head or something like that. Um, 
But traditionally, mothers were very strict on their children, but to the outside world, trying to show a, you know, oh, I'm a, I'm a nice mom and all that sort of stuff. We've seen over the years, and this is sort of generic, the timing of this would be different in different countries, but we have seen the way mothers' hopes for their childs evolve. For obvious reasons, in most cultures, for most of history, the single thing you're worried about was making sure your kid actually survived. Health was the map. And then we got into the thing about well-behaved, and then as we got into broader middle-class societies, it was all about success, and then as we got more, more successful societies, it was about being the best, and who knows where it's going to go from now. <clears throat> so the hopes of the, the children you have has evolved, and if you look at a marketplace like Japan, of course, you know, you would think that they were thinking, well, I want my kid to be the best. So, we actually asked mothers, if you could have a choice for your child, the child grew up to be happy, successful, or rich, which one? Now, not surprisingly, mothers in most countries overwhelmingly said, out of those three, I want my kid to be happy. In a marketplace like India, they said, well, it's about a 50-50 game because, you know, you can't be happy unless you're successful. But you get the picture. Basically, what they said was, well, happy, yeah, happy. Well, of course, I want to be successful. Rich would be nice, but happy's good, right? <clears throat> what we found, though, is that that's then reflected in the way they actually talk and act to their children versus the outside world. That they believe that actually talking hard to the outside world about their family and putting on a harsh face of like, I'm a disciplinarian, I'm making my kid work hard, I'm doing that, that's great. But on the inside, I want my kid to be my friend or I want the kid to be happy with me. Now, the reason for that is because this, this illustration is actually deceptive because it's not just a case of China or Japan, but in most of the world, that's becoming more and more one kid, okay? And the functionality, of course, of two things happens. Again, when a mother only has one child, she doesn't have much option. Now, if you had six kids, there was a good chance that one of those kids was A, going to take care of you when you got old. When you only got one kid, that kid better like me, otherwise I'm screwed when I'm 75. Okay? They're screwed anyway. They're screwed anyway. But <laughs> but I'm not, this is actually verbatims that we heard back from mothers across all of these countries. That as they, they've realised that they only have one or two children, I need that child to be my friend. Now, the other functionality of that is in a marketplace like Japan, where, again, think about the women who are the younger mothers of Japan. They were raised, leave school, enjoy a great life for six, seven, eight years as single young women spending all their money on personal care, holidays, entertainment. They become mothers. Do we really think they change their personality overnight? All the evidence says no. Their spending behaviour patterns don't dramatically change. Their aspirations for personal care, for entertainment, don't really change. What you've got to do is look at the way at Starbucks. Look at the uh, look at the restaurant marketplace. Look at the entertainment marketplaces. So what happens is that we actually, in a similar vein to what's happened in China through the one-child policy, we've ended up with, if you like, a generation of mothers 
who, as they become mothers, have been brought up through their, not just their childhood, but their adult life, to be, I won't call it self-centered, but certainly they want to enjoy their lives. Now they suddenly, they've got a kid. They've usually, in Japan, they've lobbed into that as a, a decision themselves. They've decided to become a mother. They've decided to only have one child. They want that child to be an extension of their own childhood. They don't want to give up, in a sense, that extended adult childhood that they've enjoyed. And this has been particularly strong in what we've seen in places like Japan, China, Italy, the marketplaces where overwhelmingly people are having one child. It's very interesting because the whole mimosa thing in, in Italy is exactly the same mentality. So by creating happiness today, the idea it's markedly different to raising a title generation from the 90s to the early 2000s. Um, of course, there are things going on in the world in the last few years that make raising a child more difficult, no more so than in Japan. But in that context then, what they've got to do is to think about what values they most believe their child should have. Globally, we found respect, being respectful, honest, smart. We gave uh, people a list of about 40 different values and said, which ones would you prioritise as most important for your child to have? Respectful, honest, smart. The difference in Japan, respectful was, uh, respectful was basically number one nearly everywhere. Uh, in Japan, though, it was interesting because friendly came up. Now, friendly actually came way down the list in most countries. In Japan, though, it was extremely important. I want them to be friendly. Talented was a distant third. Smart, in Japan, was about number 15. In China, smart was number one. <laughs> The reason for that, when we investigated and asked, you know, well, why do you think, asked a bunker of women, well, why do you think women like you said this? Well, if they're not friendly, they won't fit in. The number one thing I worry about is my kid not fitting in. Smart, well, that would be a nice bonus, but, you know, actually, if you're too smart, you stand out. So that's not such a good thing either. In, Japan, in China, it's all about, in India, it's all about being smart. Because you can't be successful, you can't have a happy life, I should say, unless you're successful. This is interesting because it gets us into the whole debate about things like the hikikomori and all those sorts of fundamental social issues that are almost unique to Japan. And why does that happen? Why do mothers allow their kids to do that? It's an interesting functionality. It's because, well, they're obviously not friendly enough. They're not fitting in. It comes back to some other issues that I'll come back onto in a minute. Mums in many countries want to communicate these values by placing herself on the same level as their kids. So 61% of mums want their children to think of them as their friend. That raises to, in the, in the high 80s in a place like India or China, Japan was the lowest. Japanese mothers basically don't want their kids to think of them as friends. What they want to think of them as companions. It's different. I want my kid to do stuff with my kid. I don't necessarily want to be a, my kid to be my friend. There's a difference, a companion. This is why Japanese mothers love the idea of doing ballet classes with their daughter, etc., etc., etc. It's not because I want to hang out with the kid. It's because that means I can extend my own adult childhood through the behaviours of doing a ballet class, doing all those lessons, etc. I'm doing it for myself as much as I am for my kid. She wants to spend enriched and productive time with her kids. She certainly does want to be supportive. She also wants to be patient. Um, 
naturally mothers would like to think about themselves as having characteristics that would be uh, seen as aspirational by other mothers. But think about this, we gave, uh, we gave mothers a list of about 15 uh, different activities and we said if you could have an app, if we could get uh, Steve Jobs' ghost to create a miracle app that could do any one of these things, which one would you think is, you would like prefer? Which is the most important app? Well, it's interesting because globally the answer was clearly time travel. Right? The ability to move through time and to get more things done, to cope with the pressure, to be able to skip past the crap stuff very fast and spend more time at the good stuff. This was overwhelmingly, yeah, I love, the, I love that idea. But you're correct, Ken, in Japan it was cooked dinner. This very complicated chart, and, and uh, you, can, you can get this downloaded, I'll, I'll explain where. Sorry about the colour chart, but it's sort of interesting. This green bar represents cooked dinner for me. Notice Japan compared to all the other countries. Now, it's true, just about everywhere said, let me time travel or let me see into the future. As the most common answers. And Japan, that was fairly important, but Japan's significantly different about this attitude to let me cook dinner. Now, I work, I had a global team on this. The core of that team is based in New York. It's a couple of Brits and a couple of Americans. They looked at these, this data and rang me up and said, what the hell's wrong? Can't Japanese women cook? Ah. I said, no, that's actually the opposite. That's the, it's the opposite reason why they said this. They are a perfectionist society. When iMode launched, uh, whenever that was, th 13 years ago, 14 years ago, in the first two years, what was the single largest subject for downloads? Foreign recipes. Young, single Japanese women downloading foreign recipes was the single largest subject. What's one of the biggest things that's gone on in Japan that's just around the corner here, there's one, cooking schools are everywhere. Is this because they can't cook? They're going to French patisserie schools. It's not because they can't cook. One of the issues for Japanese mothers, as we all know, is the bento box sy syndrome. I'm sure all of you... One and a half hours. One and a half hours, right? I'm sure every one of you, every lady in the room, if there's mothers like Barbara, right? So when you go back to Germany and you explain to German mothers that you can get... You can get phoned up by the school principal and basically get told your kid will get kicked out of school if you don't improve the bento boxes. <laughs> okay. In America, that basically means I'll sue the school, right? Um, <laughs> in China, that when we tell them that, that's just met with absolute disbelief. Like, you know, I'll just go in, I'll stab the teacher, you know? Um, <laughs> But it's all got to do, again, with this perfectionism thing. It's not that they don't want to time travel. It's not that they don't want these other things. It's, it's symbolic of this thing of, like, I'm under this pressure to be perfect, to be perfect. There are some other interesting uh, uh, things. You'll note, uh, for example, that in China, um, they much more highly rated transport my kids to all their activities after school. I want an app that will act as a taxi. Um, and that goes maybe to the tiger mum syndrome and all that sort of stuff. So, 89% are sharing technology experiences with their child. Um, they like to, in some way, share experiences, not just doing homework, but playing games, 
you can see the figures are sort of like uh, video. We play games on our game consoles. That's about 30% of mothers globally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so significant numbers when we work in the world of uh, technologies and with the technology clients I deal with about the way in which for Microsoft or Apple, etc., about the way in which mothers want to interact with technologies with their kids. Interestingly, on every one of these things, Japanese mothers was the lowest score. On every single one, Japanese mothers are less likely to want to interact with, the with their kids through technology. They basically don't want to hang out with their kid. They don't want to play with their kid. They just want to do stuff. Oh, with the kid, okay, that's a different thing. But mums everywhere are using technology strategically. Not surprisingly, we had lots of examples about, well, you know, chocolate's sort of bad for the kid, but what I'll do is now I'll, instead of bribing them with a chocolate bar, I'll, I'll bribe them by they can use my iPhone for an hour or something like that. Even the most resourceful mums are still wondering what constitutes a balanced technology diet for their kids. Um, we found a lot of discussion about this, about, you know, obviously the thing about how much TV time we... Even I grew up with that, but you know, um, now it's all about how much console time, how much smartphone time, desktop computer time. We even had one mother in Italy discussing about, not too sure how much pornography I should allow my kid to watch. Okay, that was in a focus group. You can imagine the other five mothers in the room just stopped talking and getting five Italian mothers to stop talking is pretty hard, right? So. Okay. We then get onto this whole area of balancing or trying to cope with the very different uh, roles that I'm playing and things I'm doing. So this idea of a, the mum's triathlon. In the past, we had very distinct things going on. And a mother could quite easily identify her role as uh, the self-me, the work-me, the family-me if she was doing each of these things. And basically, there were, uh, there were distinct times and places, that distinct activities. Of course, today, that's very difficult because partly because she doesn't see herself as being three different people, she sees herself as being one person that does all of these things. And that's in itself a, a, an interesting conundrum for them because sometimes they do feel like they're being pulled apart. So there's no set barriers. Now I'm a working woman. Now I'm mum doing this. Now I'm going out with my friends. Now I've got to be all of these things all the time. Um, so she wants to share the different parts of her life and experiences with her child and show them, you know, her true self in some way. So this here, the red bar says, I want my children to know the real me, even if that means showing them the mistakes uh, and make bits of myself uh, less, that, that they would be less proud of or I'm less proud of, aware. And, and the yellow bar says, I want to be good, a good role model and if necessary, I will hide bits of myself for my behaviour or my behaviour that I don't want my children to see. So you can see here quite clearly, you know, Mexican mothers basically just splurge it all out. Um, you know, I want them to see and, and believe in me no matter what happens, etc., etc. Japanese mothers tend to be down this end. We found it interesting that Asian mothers generally um, are more cautious about this, about I want to get some sort of balance I'm not too sure about letting my kid know about everything about me. Mm. I wish that were true. I wish I could, but I'm not too sure I can take the risk on that. What we have seen, again, is that there was a, a sort of balancing act that went on in terms of activities, me activities, mum activities. Now what we're seeing is it's an integration model. 
And this is driven mostly because of the technologies that mean you can't switch on and off between different things. That, that damn smartphone has its advantages, but we, as we all know, smartphones are basically a cause for anxiety. Um, and they're certainly a cause for anxiety for a mother because you, you are basically doing everything at once all the time. In this particular question, we were trying to find out attitudes to being a supermum. This came about because some of our, my colleagues in the United States, when they went and interviewed bloggers, one particular blogger they went and interviewed is a lady who has uh, a following of uh, nearly half a million other mothers. And so she is considered a supermum in the United States. And she's often referred to that in the popular media. And this idea of being a supermum in recent years has become a thing in the United States about, you know, you can be a supermum too, which basically means you've got all the answers you can cope. You give advice to everybody, blah, blah, blah. So we ask the question, how much do you agree with the following statement, that there is no such thing as a supermum? And we found that basically, actually, the United States is a little bit different from the rest of the world. Whereas about 50% of mothers in the United States would say, yes, it is possible to be a supermum, that much less so in other countries. Um, and that's basically, again, goes back down to some cultural facets about braggadocio or, you know, the willingness of Americans to say, I can do everything. Um, I'm not insulting Ken, but it's just true. Right? Actually, you're the living example of this, right? You said it. Yeah. In which country, um, so that should be, in which country do women think they're the best mothers? India. Again, sorry for the, the colour chart, but here the red symbolises I think I'm a very good mother, the yellow says I think I'm an okay mother, the green says I think I'm a, sorry, very good mother, green is I'm a good mother, yellow is I'm an okay mother, grey is I'm a bad mother. Nobody else even close. Very interesting. But Italy has a lot of yellow. Italy has a lot of yellow. I think I'm an okay mother. Uh, but, you know, they also have an awful lot of mothers who think they're good. The important thing for me was this, this, this segment here. Now, on the evidence that we have, are Japanese mothers worse mothers than mothers in these other countries? Um, you can... Argue, you can debate that all night if you like, and I'm sure some of you probably will want to debate that with me later on. Certainly, there are a couple of factors. Again, I'll go back to, for example, the whole factor of hikikomori, which is partly political. Remember that in most of these other countries, you, in the West at least, hikikomori could not exist within a society because the child would be taken away from you if you left them in their room for days and weeks on end. In Japan, they get around that. So maybe that's one thing. The bigger factor here was the perfectionism thing. Again, when we came back and we asked mothers, why do you think mothers like you in Japan are so doubtful about how good a mother you are? Well, well it's very hard to be perfect. Right? When you ask mothers in the... Notice, no grey in the United States. 
Not a single mother. In a survey of just under 1,200 American mothers, not one said, I think I'm a bad mother. No self-doubt. Now, this has become, uh, now that that's sort of become the norm, uh, mums don't sort of have to put themselves in a box anymore. Now, what we see is things like, my daughter's always complaining about what I'm doing, I just want to accept and be proud of me. Remember what I said before, mothers in Japan in particular are about, uh, a bit balanced about this, but they would like their kid to accept whatever they do. Um, and the point is that in that race, you know, I lived my, my mum philosophy, and my mum philosophy is quite often built around the concept of I want to be who I am, and being a mother is part of who I am. It's a very important part. It's a, in, again, in Japan, primarily it's a voluntary part, and one I've thought hard about, but it doesn't actually dominate my life. And so, therefore, it's part of the brand I create for myself. A couple of interesting points as I finish off. <coughs> Shopping as a stress release is a sort of interesting thing. We're obviously very interested in shopping because I work for an advertising agency. We asked the question across countries, and I'll just give you, the, these are examples of Japan, Brazil, China, India, and then the global total, not just the total of these countries. But you can see here, I often shop around to find the best deals. Brazil, yeah, okay, but Japan was almost the global average. I often save up money to buy the things I really want by spending less on other things. Japanese mothers were more likely than anybody else to say they did that. What was most important for us was this, which was counterintuitive to what most marketers would say in Japan, which was, I often buy things on impulse or shop to relieve my stress. Japanese mothers clearly in, were much more likely to say yes to that than any other country. I like to have branded products that other people notice. Japanese mothers were actually less likely to say that. Younger Japanese, remember this is Japanese mothers of children 15 and under. They're the younger generation mothers. If we ask the same question of women in their 50s, oh, that's it's split. The Louis Vuitton Gucci generation, which is why Louis Vuitton and Gucci are like a suffering like hell, right? Um, so this is a very interesting thing. And, and of course, as a, as a, a marketing consultant, this becomes extremely important because these sorts of answers, because what it says is that mothers in Japan are thinking fundamentally different about the shopping experience than perhaps we had thought they'd thought about. Now, those branded products, etc., that's not, we're not talking, we're talking about things like baby food. We're talking things like band-aids. We're talking things like prams and strollers and things like that. So for all of the success that McLaren has had in recent years in Japan, and Japan is now the number two market in the world for McLaren prams, actually what we find is that mother, most mothers, yeah, I'd like a McLaren pram, but you know what, you know, uh, if I could save money on that to buy something else that I really want, okay. Or I might save money on all of the other stuff just to get the McLaren pram. So they're going to do trade-offs. That comes to light when we look at these figures. I said that we've been doing this study, in Japan at least, for uh, eight years now. 
In those eight years, we developed five segments of mothers built around their attitudes to motherhood and attitudes to purchase behavior. Those five set groups are what we call celebrity mums. Celebrity mums are defined as mothers who basically, um, one of the tests was we said, okay, I'm gonna give you 50,000 yen. What are you gonna do with it? A celebrity mum's answer is, go to lunch take my friends out to lunch, or I'll buy a bag, something like that. Impulse mothers are mothers who basically buy stuff on impulse. They react and they do things on impulse. They're driven not by any conscious long-term thought or procedure, but by reacting to circumstance. They're great for, for marketers, because they're the people, if you put a sale sign up, they're gonna go, oh, I'll, I'll buy it because it's on sale, even though it's the same price as yesterday. Natural mothers were mothers, the low house type mothers. Mothers who put a priority on where the goods came from, how they were manufactured, what's the longer, longer term doubt, benefit or doubts of a product. Economy type mothers are mothers basically are driven to save money. Not say necessarily because they have to, but because they like to. That being, finding the cheaper option is a hobby. They're fanatical about it. And then what we called unconcerned mothers came about because when we first started into the study, we found that there was like nearly a third of mothers who basically just went with the flow on everything. They didn't really have an opinion on anything. Now notice over the years, the changes. Since we've gone through the Lehman shock, uh, the, the 2011 study, by the way, was done in September last year, so six months after the earthquake. What we've seen is that as we've gone through all these things, this group has shrunk because women cannot afford to be unconcerned so much. What we have seen is this has played very consistently. About 15% of the population in Japan is low house mentality in action as well as word. What we've seen is, not surprisingly, the number of celebrity mothers has shrunk. It's stabilised at around 8% over time. And that's because, as we've seen that contraction of uh, the upper middle class, that's, that's now flattened out, and we see those mothers are represented there. But what's interesting is the constant growth of impulse, and of course, some increase in economy. But what's been interesting, we thought this would grow much more as this shrunk, but what we found was it was actually this that was growing. Those two together make for indulgent parsimony. Well, they do. They do indeed. And this group in particular is interesting because as this impulse segment grows for mothers, what we find, of course, is that they are more likely in, remember, the whole mum's economy and the problem of information. So what's happening is we're finding that more mothers are reacting rather than long-term thinking, that they're impulse-driven because it's just so damn hard to figure out what to do to make up a decision, to, to, to go through the whole process. My last point is this, this is quite interesting. Um, that's also connected to a, a broader attitude in terms of shift, uh, uh, switching. So here we asked uh, similar but slightly different questions to the ones I showed you before. Thinking about child-related products and services that you buy from children's clothes to children-friendly electronics to food to toys, how would you describe your brand loyalty? So here you can see this is the all countries across all eight countries, and this is Japan. 
The red blob is somewhat brand loyal. I buy mostly the same brands, but I am opening to trying others. Not very brand loyal. I buy mostly based on convenience and special offers. I am very brand loyal. Once I get used to a brand, it is very difficult to get me to change. Not at all brand loyal. I love different brands all the time. Japanese mothers were the most likely to say they're not brand loyal. Now this is very interesting as a marketer because the perception in the marketing world is that Japanese people don't switch. We found that anybody basically under 35 stretching to 40 in Japan are actually world-class switches. And why are they world-class switches? 7-Eleven. Convenience stores. Put yourself in a mindset. You probably all know the statistics. Uh, an average 35-year-old man in Japan eats a meal bought at a, set, at a CES 12 times a week. Okay? Can you fit? 12 times a week. Okay, so 12 meals a week are bought at CES. A woman in her mid-30s is less. It's only seven. So basically, on average, every day they buy a meal in some form. It might be just a cup of yogurt, whatever it is. It's a meal they buy at a CVS. It does mean that they go to the CVS at least on average every day. The significant thing is they've been doing that for 15 years. If you're a 35-year-old in Japan, you've been visiting a CVS on average every single day for your whole adult life. Now, if you go to buy a drink in a CVS in Japan, the typical 7-Eleven has how many different, different drinks in it? Just over 300. The typical CVS in any Western country, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, is 60. They have five times more choice in Japan. The average CVS has a new drink on the shelf every 1.2 days on average over the last 15 years. But that's because in Japan the marketing involves right. churning. Churning, China. right. But what is that, what we some, we understand the effect that has on the retailer, we understand the effect that has on the manufacturers, the force, the forcing of come up with new products. Mm -hmm. What does that teach people? It's not just CVS's. If you think about the retail world in Japan, and you think about existing over the last 15, 20 years, as you've gone, or longer, as you've gone through elementary school, high school, college, working life, you are basically taught to switch. You're taught that choice is nothing special. The choice that new is absolutely normal. New is meaningless because there's a new product every day. There's a new version every day, every single day. And it's happened your, every day of your whole adult and most of your childhood. So what then happens is we're finding that women of this generation in Japan, this figure is much bigger than any of the other countries we survey. Because they're used to switching, switching, trial, trial, fads. The other thing, the conundrum is that if you've been looking at marketing in Japan over the last 30 years, from an international marketer's point of view, it's a wastage marketplace because you have all these fads, right? Oh God, there's fads, how are we gonna come with the fads? But what do fads teach people? Switch. Switch, switch. That's why they switch. This is very significant because it means Japanese mothers are not what we thought they were. Now, they're not loyal. They're actually educated to be 
normal, and normal is not to be loyal. That's a very difficult conundrum for a, for a marketer. So, what does all that mean for brands? Well, brands have to embrace the mother's triathlon. They have to think about how to help mothers get through the race. As I said, they're having very great difficulties with <coughs> all the information, so they're looking for easy ways to cope with all of this. We need to also celebrate her success and not dramatise her failures, because failure is too easy in this world. Failure in the, in the mum's economy, when you have a community of thousands that you're dealing with, it's very easy to be seen as a loser in that group. So they're looking for ways to be seen as a heroine within that group, which is why they want to be seen as experts or they want to find out that they're doing the right thing, etc., etc. How do we communicate with these people? Celebrate integration instead of dramatising compromises. Um, uh, speak to her as a woman as well as a mother at all times. Uh, acknowledge the different types of women with different types of families, different visions of their families. There is no such thing as a generic good mother who raises her kids the same way. Be real, but don't be a mirror because what women want to see is the alternative and the choices and how to, how to engage that. And that's basically what we've been learning about mothers. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much.